Welcome to How Do You Write? I'm your host, Rachel Heron. On this podcast, I talk to authors about how they write, what their process is, and how their lives fit together. I'll keep each episode short so you can get back to writing. Well, hello, writers. Welcome to episode number 292 of How Do You Write? I'm Rachel Heron. So very glad you're here today. Um, This is going to be a bonus mini episode where I answer questions from patrons, but I'm also going to be doing an introduction uh, as to where I am in my writing right now. And where I am in my writing right now is um, interesting and painful, and I want to share it with you. But before we get into that, I want to say thank you to um, new patron, Stephen Katoyich. Stephen, I probably just um, murdered your last name. I apologize for that. Thank you so much. And Sophie Birdie uh, upped her pledge so that she could to five dollars a month so that she could ask this amazing question that is going to be coming up. So thank you for that. These podcasts where I just answer questions and we don't have a, a guest on. Um, strangely, you all seem to really like them, and it's a very good way to get questions about your writing and about your career and about anything else answered. So um, thank you for being at that level. I'm looking forward to these awesome questions. Before we go there, though, a little update. I, first of all, I went out of town away on my writing retreat and it was heaven. I am convinced that four nights away for me as a human being, when I'm trying to get away and alone, four nights is perfect because that means three full days of being alone, doing what you want when you want to do it. And I really kind of allowed myself, not kind of, I chose to allow myself to follow my heart. What my heart wanted to do, I did. I promised myself that on the middle day, I would definitely do some writing on the book in progress. But the first day I told myself if I didn't want to write at all, I could, I could just read. I could just lie on the floor and look up at the ceiling. It didn't matter. Um, but what, what happens for me when I allow myself to follow my heart like that, amazing, wonderful things happen. I rested. I read, I read three total books, probably, and then, I, and then uh, no, not probably, I read three books and probably one and a half more because I was also dipping in and out of four other books. Couldn't quite decide on what to settle down with. Settle down on three. Um, read a lot of those other books. I would move from the couch to the table where I would work on a poem. Uh, and then I would go on a long hike. I went on one long hike on the beach, beach so far that I actually injured my foot and it got all swollen because I had new hiking boots. But then that was on the last day. So then I just had to rest and keep my foot up on the, on the last full day of being there. I made glorious food. It was an hour and a half away from the nearest even like corner market on dirt roads and I wasn't going to drive back there. So I I did make sure that I brought a ton of food. I made a whole roast chicken and roast veg and um, beautiful sandwiches and these amazing figs from the tree that were right there. I was right on the water, a little five minute walk through this paddock down to the water. There was absolutely no one around. The owners lived on property. Um, They brought me ibuprofen when my foot was swollen, but otherwise I just didn't see them. They were kind of around the corner. And I was so isolated and so alone for the first time since December, 2019, I slept alone at night and uh, both my wife and I really, really love our alone time. We also love being with each other. So that's normally fine, but it was really enjoyable for both of us, for me to leave and be alone and for her to stay here at home and be alone. So that was fantastic. I also got a lot of work done on the novel I'm writing, um, just uh, most of all, I got a lot of good thinking done. I figured out some big problems that I have been heading toward, uh, and hopefully, I can I can miss them, miss those rocks. However, it's a first draft, so it's gonna it's gonna be rocky. It's gonna be it's gonna be a large mess, and it was just fine, kind of fun to play with that mess, and it was really fun to play with writing poetry. I actually managed to send out a newsletter. I was not supposed to have Wi-Fi there. Um, but there was a little Wi-Fi, which was actually disappointing to me. So I made rules around my Wi-Fi usage. I removed all social media from my phone and I think I'm going to keep it off my phone for a while. I'm enjoying that. It's quieter in my head. Uh, and I only used the Wi-Fi. I didn't check email. I didn't look at Slack. I was there 
to be away from other voices, but I did allow myself to play music on it. And, um, also to connect with my lovies on either text or Marco Polo, which is a, an app I really like to use. The Wi-Fi was not strong enough to support something like Zoom anyway, um, but it would send Marco Polo messages through. So I used it for music and for connection to my lovies, which is which was awesome. Otherwise, I wasn't looking at my phone. I was looking at the I was looking at the inside of my brain and shoring myself up for what came yesterday. So um I left the retreat on Tuesday morning, came home, organized the office. I've got this uh, new to me desk. I've inherited Lala's big L-shaped desk. So that's what I'm sitting at right now. And it's going to be better for me, even though you've got this, you know, terrible bed behind me in the, in the view. If you look at me on YouTube, that's the spare bed, which is in my office, which is great. Cause I have found out that I actually really like to first draft lying on a bed. That isn't my sleeping bed. So that's been fantastic. Uh, but I spent some time, you know, reorganizing the house. And then I went, uh, did, did a little bit of work. I went out sailing, I did my sailing class, which is terrifying. And I love it. And then Wednesday morning, I woke up knowing I was getting a migraine. So I did everything to treat it. Uh, I knew it was coming. And then my revision letter landed for my next memoir, which is called Complete. And Y'all, the reason I'm choosing to talk about this right now, less than 24 hours after receiving the revision letter is for an important reason, because I, I am in pain. I am in pain about it. It doesn't go away. Revision letters do not stop hurting. Uh, I got, I got one revision letter. I think it was on my seventh or eighth book. It was a it might've been for one of the Darling Songbirds books. I can't remember, but I got a letter from my editor. This was at a traditional publishing house. And she just, she liked the book. She said, oh, could you change a few things here? And could you change a few things here? And I did not trust it. I did not trust. I had, I still don't trust that. I still don't trust that I had read the, written the strongest book um, because I never write a strong book. I need editing to make it a strong book. And while it felt, great for her to say, great book, just do a few tweaks and we're done. I would much rather have an intensely difficult edit. Um, However, there is, like we talked about in that episode with Eileen, four or five episodes ago, go back and listen to that about the revision letter if you haven't yet. Um, The revision letter is what you get from your editor about the book and it's macro and micro. And usually you get your full manuscript back with, with a thousand comments in it. Um, no exaggeration. And you get a long editing uh, revision letter that basically tells you big picture what they saw in it, what they're concerned about. Um, I received it in my email. I read the first paragraph, which traditionally, and this editor who I am in love with, although I'm terrified of, uh, did the traditional thing of using the first, the first paragraph, the first few lines of the, par- the first paragraph to say what you did well. And then I just put, pulled it up. And then the other 18 page, this is a 19 page revision letter. It is double spaced. A lot of times revision letters are single spaced. So this is basically a 10 page single spaced revision letter. However, holy crap. So first paragraph was what I did great. And then 18 pages of what needs to be shored up, what needs to be fixed, what is broken. Uh, Sometimes I feel like this is a tiny bit, only a tiny bit, but a tiny bit harder for memoir because they're also, editors are also, when you're working on creative nonfiction, there is this feeling of like, oh, and also you suck because this is your life. So, but bef- so I read that first paragraph and then, um, okay, I'm going to read these to you because... <laughs> I want to. Uh, first of all, let me say I'm impressed. You're a talented writer with a French fresh angle on memoir. No easy feat these days. The way you've taken the currently popular personal essay form and giving it, given it an interesting meta twist is very cool. In its best moments, I found the manuscript sharply observed and powerful, powerfully moving. I broke out in tears on at least three occasions as I was reading it. And your narrative voice is accessible, compelling, and just plain fun to hang out with. You strike a tone of companionable intimacy that readers naturally respond to. <laughs> at the same time, I think the manuscript is uneven overall with some sections that are stupendous and others that need both tightening and elaboration. 
This book also has some fundamental structural issues or so I believe. And then the next 18 pages are talking about those issues. Oh, this is why I'm reading this to you. Uh, She said, let's start with the micro level and then move to the macro. Before you read any further in this memo, I would urge you to go through the marked up manuscript and absorb all the annotations and changes I've made. I've never had an editor to tell me that because my aunt, my immediate urge was to ignore that advice and bolt my way through the 18 to 19 page letter, searching desperately for other things that she liked in my work. But she said very clearly, before you read any further in this memo, I would urge you to go through the marked up manuscript. I am also, even though I give into my baser desires quite often, I'm also a good rule follower. And I thought, you know what? She's got a reason for this. So I got up from my desk and I walked into my partner's office and I said, I need to explain things to you right now. And she knows this. She's been through this before. Um, But this is the first time that I have sent a memoir to an editor without anybody's eyes ever having been on it. It's only mine. It's only my particular huge mess. And I, and And I knew that I would get back a fantastic revision letter. But I kind of called in the support. I called in the troops first. Um, And the troops in this case are my wife. And I walked in and I said, look, this is how revision letters work. I'm going to remind you how they work, please. Um, For the next 72 hours, I will be a wreck. And then sometime within the end of the, by the end of this week, I will have consolidated what she has told me and I'll be excited about making the changes. But for at least the next 24 to 72 hours, I'm going to be a wreck. And she said, I know you are, you could do it. And so then I started reading all the comments and (laughs) they're they're no joke, y'all. She is a fantastic editor who does not believe in leaving the smiley faces, you know, hearts behind in, in the manuscript. I do not need those, but I will say I like them. Um, but when I say something that annoys her, she shows me how annoyed she is. Um, I got a few oives. I got a few, uh, you have got to stop doing this. Um, <laughs> and I'm laughing now, although I wasn't laughing yesterday. So I read all of the comments. I, I basically, I turn off all her copy edits because sometimes, um, structural editors, which is what this was. This was a developmental structural edit. Sometimes I'll do a little bit of light copy editing. They'll catch typos as they see them, but that is not their job. So I turned all those off so I couldn't see them because there were so many other comments. So I just looked at her straight up comments and it hurt. It hurt. Yes. And you know, there were other passages that, you know, there, there were whole essays that she loved. And then there were whole essays, which I already knew were problematic where she was like, holy crap, you, this is problematic. How are you going to fix this contradiction that you have set up for yourself? How did you even do that? Uh, so I absorbed those comments and then I went back and read the rest of the letter, which was fabulous. Um, it basically said in deeper detail, all of the things that she had said in those little comments. Um, there's there the structural problem that I was worried she was going to find was in actually the way I had set up the entire book. And I was not confident in the way I had set up this book very non-traditionally. And she liked that. The structural problem she had an issue with was, I think she thought it was going to be a big deal. And editors sometimes do this. They tell you something. They're like, oh my God, I hope you don't you know, want to die when I tell you this. And you hear it and you go, oh no, I can actually fix that pretty easily. There was a large structural component to this. And she actually suggested a possible fix, which is not the fix I'm going to use, which also often happens, um, but gave me an idea for the fix for this. And I've done this often enough and I love revision enough and I have the tools in my toolbox to know, oh, this is, this is all doable. However, the migraine that was creeping up on me, oh my God, it just got bigger and bigger. And then I taught my classes and managed to stave it off through the classes. And then after the classes, I finished reading everything that she had sent me and the migraine landed. And the reason I'm saying this is the migraine was just, it was just my time to get the migraine, um, the, the aura for it coming. I've been feeling for a couple of days, even at the retreat, I knew it was coming. However, high emotion makes a migraine worse. And yesterday night, last night I was really in hell. And I tried to explain it to my partner at dinner. And I said, I can't, I can't really tell you exactly what this feels like, but I'm having a huge shame hangover. 
And she, and she was like, it's, well, you don't be ashamed of it. This is what you do. You hire an editor to help you. And I'm like, I know, I know all of these things. I do not hire editors to tell me how I'm great. I just don't. I mean, that would be awesome, but that's not why we do it. We tell, we hire excellent editors to tell us what is broken, what we can't see. And then we figure out how to make the solution, how to create the solution. But the fact of the matter, and this is why I'm bringing it up, is the shame hangover is so real for people like me. It may be that you're listening to this and you're saying, what's a shame hangover? I've never had one of those. And God bless you. But for me, what a shame hangover is, is when somebody has expected you to do something and you don't do it and you really, really let them down and you hurt them by letting them down because you were stupid or um preoccupied or just didn't get how important something was and you end up hurting somebody. And then you are left with that awful, terrible, icky feeling of dread. I, of dread and shame and shame about the dread and dread about the shame, all of those things. And I was feeling it, even though consciously, I know that I have let no one down. In fact, I've done myself the greatest favor by hiring such a fantastic editor who will not pull any punches, not even, can you pull one punch? No punches pulled. I'm doing myself the favor. I have not hurt her feelings by having errors in my book and no one else has seen this book. And I'm still left with that awful feeling in the pit of my stomach and right in the middle of my chest that says, you are a failure. You failed you really, really fucked this one up, Rachel. Like, and this, and all of it is not true, but the feelings exist. And me knowing that the feeling is not based in truth doesn't help the feeling. So last night, lying when the when the migraine finally got me, um, I was lying in bed and I tried something for the first time. And I, I, I'm learning, getting older and learning and listening to people, listening to my friend, Mona McDermott, who talks a lot about um, self-care and self-care of feelings. And I realized that what I was doing was grieving, <laughs> grieving, not being perfect. It's so freaking annoying. Uh, but it was grief. It was grief that when we send our books out, there's a part of us that will always hope that they write back and say, this is great. We, like I said, we don't want them to do that. And then we get the real truth back and it hurts for about 72 hours. So while I was in bed last night, I put my hand on my, I know this is going to sound California, but my hand on my chest. And instead of saying things like, you're going to get through this, you can do this, you've got this, you have all the tools, et cetera, which is my normal kind of mantra to myself. I didn't do that. I just gave myself sympathy. I said, wow, this hurts, doesn't it? Wow, this doesn't feel good. Um, this is really painful. I'm so sorry that you're going through this pain and I'm going to try not to cry right now, but it was so effective. All I needed to do was give myself a little bit of sympathy for, um, <laughs> you pay a lot of money for 20 pages of somebody to tell you where you are getting everything wrong. And that is what you want. And funnily enough, by the time I did that, I felt a lot better about the revision and I was already starting to make plans in my head loosely about how I'm going to fix this book. I woke up in a pretty great mood. It's not taking me 72 hours to realize that she's right about everything. I kind of already knew that yesterday. Um, and today I'm actually reaching the gratitude point. And the, the blow to my pride and ego is finally, it's all, is already, not finally, is already almost early dissipating and I'm getting excited about what to do and what I, what I do and what I teach, um, like in the 90 day revision class. And if you go back and listen to my revision episode of this podcast, I think it's 106 or 108, you'll be able to find it is basically, I start at the top of the book. I read the whole book. I make a outline of everything that's in the book so that I can read the book the whole book in about two minutes by looking above it. And then I'm going to go through her letter and make a bunch of post-its about every single thing that she said. And then I'm going to combine those two things. I'm going to look at that outline and all my post-its of ideas of how to fix things. And I'm going to make myself a new map of how to fix this book. And then I'm going to start at the top and I'm going to turn the book upside down and take it apart and peer into the lining and make sure I didn't leave any Kleenex in the pocket. There's so much Kleenex in the pocket. Oh, I've got to tell you because I'm being very, very vulnerable in this episode. Um, she pointed out, oh, 
oh, and sharing it is going to make it make me feel better. She pointed out the places where I would humble brag. And I cannot tell you how much I hate that. Like humble brag that I've got this much work to do and humble brag that um, I'm a writer. And she's like, nobody cares. Nobody cares that you're a writer. Quit humble bragging. Everybody has, everybody has troubles. What are you, how are you making this interesting? How are you quit telling us things and showing us things? All I try to do is show scenes in my writing. And I'm still failing to do that as, as well as I could. The things that I'm always telling students, you know, show, don't tell. Yes, we have to tell sometimes telling will happen, but show more. She was pointing out big sections of my book where I need to uh, quit humble bragging, which is really my most hated toxic trait, um, which I own and where I can show more. And I was like, God damn it. I know all this. I know all this. I know all this. I teach all this. And I need someone to point it out to me. And I need her to point it out to me. She's the perfect editor for me for this. And um, I'm just really feeling grateful today and excited. And also um, giving myself the grace and the kindness to know that, yes, my feelings are almost back in order today, but it's only the second day after getting the letter, by the third day after the letter, tomorrow, I'm going to be a lot more equipped to kind of dive in and start doing the work. But today I'm still feeling my way around it. I'm going to be doing other work uh, before I dive really headfirst into it. I'm giving myself some patience, some grace, some space, and then I will get to work. But I wanted to come to you in still inside the middle of this really hard part. And, um, if you follow me on Twitter, I was kind of live, live tweeting it for a little bit. And then I, I was teaching and then I got the, the migraine started landing and I wasn't able to really be as funny and maybe humble, bra- oh God, humble braggy as I wanted to be on Twitter. So I just ended it up with like a trite, you know, can't wait to work on this. But when I finished that, that Twitter storm of, you know, kind of laughing at the things that she was telling me and laughing at myself online, because that did make me feel better. Um, the way I wrapped it all up saying, can't wait to work on this manuscript. I did not feel yesterday. That was disingenuous. Uh, I was hoping that I would feel that way soon. And I am grateful that I'm feeling more of it, but I'm still feeling shaken up. I'm still feeling like I need to put my hand on my heart later. and just say, it is okay. This, this hurts. This is hard. This is your, this is your current book, baby. The one you were so proud of and you will be proud of again. And she was really clear. She said, this is a very good book, but this book is not great. And it, and she said, it deserves to be great, which of course made me feel good and make me want and made me want to work on it even more. Um, so that is where I am. I am in, I'm on the upswing from a very hard and fast punch to the face. And that is what revision letters often, most times will feel like an enormous t- punch to the face and knowing that and prepping for it and going into it with that knowledge, with support around you um, from people who know what you're going through, or, or at least can try to imagine uh, is so helpful. And in the weeks to come, I'm sure you're going to hear me waxing rhapsodic about working on this revision right now. I'm just scared. And, uh, and I'm very grateful that you all allow me to share it with you. So let's jump into the questions. Thank you for allowing me to do that uh, longer intro to this Q&A podcast, which I usually don't do. Um, we have some great questions here. So let us jump into them, please. This one, let's see. This one comes from Stephen. Uh, thanks for waiting, Stephen. I know yours has been waiting the longest. Okay. Uh, Stephen says, in your recent annual money episode, kudos for sharing those figures, by the way, really helps to get a sense of what's possible. You mentioned Rachel's magic query letter formula and that you plan to share it with the newsletter list. I can't find it in my inbox. Did I miss it? Am I on the wrong list? If it went out, how can I get a hold of it? If you are on my writer's list, it did go out. Check your spam. Um, one thing that you can do, although all of you can do uh, that really helps authors or anybody else that you are kind of around that has mailing lists, people that you care about, when, go check your spam. When you're checking for spam, which is catching so much stuff right now, I'm finding letters from friends inside my spam regularly. And as a person who didn't check spam in years, I'm now checking it at least once a week. Um, a really nice thing you could do is actually pull those. Li- pull, if you see me in there, pull me out, put me in your inbox. It will help 
other people see my stuff, but I know that my emails have been going to spam. Um, for some people, if you're on the writers list, you would have got it. Uh, if you're on the regular big list, you wouldn't have. However, I have put it at Rachel Heron. Where did I put it? Let me just check real quick. Clickety click. You're going to hear me. I think I put it here. Um, you know what? You don't need to hear me. Click, click. Okay. Yes, I did. I put it at rachelheron.com slash magic. So go grab it. rachelheron.com slash magic. Uh, it will, if you're not on my mailing list, my, my writer email list, it will put you on the writer email list. You can immediately unsubscribe. And if you're already on it, it won't put you on it twice. It does not do that. It automatically doesn't do that. Thanks for asking that. Um, and then the question from Steven is I struggle with self-confidence in my writing. I've been publishing short stories since 2006, mainly science fiction and fantasy. I've had stories in both print and online magazines, as well as anthologies, won awards both at home and abroad, been on panels with big name authors whom I'm admired, uh, big name authors I've admired for years and have been interviewed on TV and radio. I look at what I've accomplished so far, and I know that 15-year-old me who dreamed of stuff like this would be thrilled with the success I've had. So while I feel like I look good on paper, why doesn't 40-year-old me feel like I'm any good at this? Why do I never believe people when they tell me they like something I've written, especially when I don't know them and can't chalk it up to being them, them being friends or family who have to say something nice? But why do I always believe them when they say my stuff's no good? I want to write fiction, fiction full-time, or at least the very least as a serious side hustle. I know that's my vocation. It's what I was meant to do. I know it in my bones. While I've written short stories, I have ideas for novels and want to write them, but for some reason, I just can't bring myself to. I freeze up, check it out. Something that came up in one episode, I should have written the number down, was something to the effect that is what, uh, that what if you're afraid you suck at the thing you're best at and that stopped me dead. I think that may be my issue. I want to excel at writing, but I'm afraid that my best will only ever be mediocre. How do I get past that? Can I? Any advice or insight, any resources I can look into to help me get over this fear and fix myself? I'm so happy that you asked this particular question because it is a universal question for those of us who know in our bones that this is what we were put on this earth to, uh, that we were meant to do. Um, perhaps it is one of several things that we are meant to do, but we know that this is what we're meant to do. The reason I, I said that thing that you heard on the podcast a ways back and why I kind of repeated at a semi-regular basis was it made everything click for me that the reason I didn't write for so long is that I had a deep down fear, which I could not have articulated, but un understood when I heard it, that this was the most important thing to me. And if I gave it a try and failed at it, I would never recover. And it's so deep and so true. Um, what you are discussing, this fear, this inability to believe when people tell you they like your work, um, uh, how did you, uh, yeah, but also the equal, I mean, well, probably stronger ability to believe um, when people say that something isn't good is human nature. It is the human brain. They've done all the studies on it and they've proved that most humans, I, I would, I, I do not know if this is fact, but I'm going to guess narcissists don't have this problem, but um, everybody else does in that if somebody tells you 10 good things, 10 great things, and one kind of tiny little thing that you didn't get quite right, you will obsess over that one tiny thing. The other 10 things will disappear in your mind. It's the negative, what is it? Negative bias, negativity bias. Um, very scientific, you know, um, you're, you're normal and you're scared and we are all normal and we are all scared. This ties kind of directly into my self-imposed, completely expected crisis over getting the revision letter. What I did was in that 19-page letter that she gave me, I went through and highlighted every mildly positive thing that she said for the rest of the letter in yellow, because there will be times, probably in like 15 minutes, where I need to go back to that letter, ignore every single critical thing that she said, and focus on the good stuff because I am battling my entire self wanting to believe more 
basically my, myself wants to think that because she didn't like these parts, this book is useless. I'm useless. And I can't write this book. I can't fix it. That is the truth. That is, that is what springs up in me as the truest truth. I know it is not true, but that is what I hear. So knowing that this is normal and knowing that the freezing up when you want to write these novels and these stories is normal, is completely helpful for me. Um, most people need to write, and this is high 90% of people need to write the novels fully and crappily the, the most crap you could ever write uh, before they are able to revise it and make it into something good. I am guessing that you don't do that because it is very uncomfortable. Um, and yes, it is very uncomfortable and we have to do it. The only people who can get away with not writing a full first crappy draft are the people who revise as they go and they are completing books that wind up to their, satis their satisfaction. If those two things are true, then that is your method. If you're not writing books, if you're freezing up, it is because you have to lower your expectations for yourself to the floor and then dig a basement for them to live in. You absolutely, I never say, I try not to say must on this show, but I'm going to say you must write that absolutely epically shitty first draft, which for a lot of us, some, some, for some people it's easier, uh, for some of us it's harder. I, feel, I, I find it incredibly hard because it is proof on the page that I am not a good enough writer. And of course, that's true. When I write a first draft, I am not a good enough writer yet to understand what this book wants to be and how to fix it. I've got to write the book to figure out what the plot wants to be. I can't just decide that ahead of time. I mean, I can, but it's going to change. I can't just decide on my character arcs because they change too during the book's blast them. All of the things you really need to learn about the book to make it a, not a good book, but a great book occur later in revision. Um, in those first revisions that you do by yourself, which I had done quite a few of on this book, and then later working with your editor, which is where it really gets good. Um, this statement that you made, I want to excel at writing, but what if I'm afraid that my best will only ever be mediocre? In a way, and I'm going to say this with all the love in my heart, I think in a way, most of us are all going to be very good, mediocre writers. And I mean, all of us, Stephen King, Elizabeth Gilbert, um, oh, Alice Munro, the Canadian short story writer. She is a master. Am I ever going to be a master no matter how hard I work? Am I ever going to be Alice Monroe status? Am I going to be um, Elizabeth Strout status? I am never going to be. I'm going to be a very serviceable writer who communicates plot and emotion and moves people on the page. Um, a literary genius, the majority of us will never be. So letting go of that for me actually um, make space in myself to move forward. I'm going to be as good as I can be. Uh, a couple of my girlfriends and I always talk about being good enough. If you haven't seen the Hank Green, uh, what is it Hank? I think it's Hank. Hank Green, Google Hank Green 80% um, video. And he talks about, he and his brother get their projects to 80% and then they push them out the door. Uh, the Duplass brothers, uh, Jay and what's his name, wrote a fantastic joint memoir about this. And they talk about it a lot. Um, getting things to 80%. For me, my brain says, oh my God, but that's a B. It's not an A. I need it to be 90% at least. I don't, I don't. I needed to get it to, I needed to get my memoir to 80% before I send it off to my editor. It was basically a hundred percent of what I could do at the time. And now with the help that she's giving me, I can look to see, oh, I'm about it. I'm about it. 60% right now. Let me try to get that back up to maybe 80, 85% with her help. None of our work is going to be completely excellent. The best, highest literary quality that make the angels sing. And that doesn't matter. We are still going to be moving the readers who we attract, who want to hear our voice. Am I the best podcaster in the whole world? Absolutely not. Do I edit anything I do not. Do I um and ah and contradict myself and wander all over the place? Yes. However, you're listening because you are attracted to my voice. 
there are other people who would rather die than listen to my voice and they self-select out. Our readers do the same things. Our readers self-select in. They read us because they love our writing or they don't read us because they don't like our writing and we wouldn't want them to anyway because we don't want to waste their time. Life is short. So knowing that you want to excel at writing and that you're scared that your best will only be a ever be mediocre. It's not going to be mediocre. It's going to be better than mediocre. Um, and knowing that that is just the, the, one of the most common fears that we have as serious writers, hopefully will help you move forward with writing an absolute crap first draft. And so how you get past this feeling is you make the plan of action for completing the first novel and give yourself a time. Give yourself a deadline. Do you want to do this in 90 days, hundred days? Do you want to do it in six months? Do you want to do it in four weeks? How many words a day will you, how many crappy words a day will you have to write to somehow skeleton your way to the end of a very, very crappy book? And then you do that and then you fix the book and then you write the next book. Attaching our desires to writing the best book that everyone will love. We can't do that. None of us can do that. Um, but we can write the book that eventually we will love and that our ideal readers will love too. But we have to sit down and do the work. And if that means just sitting down for 15, 20 minutes a day and getting 400 words, fantastic. If you can get a thousand words a day, what does that look like if you want a 90,000 word book? Where does that fit in your schedule? And then doing the work, which is the hardest part of all, um, but knowing that it's going to feel uncomfortable and awkward every time you sit down, but also every time you stand up from the desk and you leave those crappy words behind, you get to count every single crappy word that you have written as gold stars. You have done your job of trying to get a first draft, first crappy, crappy first draft onto the page. I believe that I'm going to um, keep banging this drum for the for my entire natural life, because it is so important to hear that you are normal. We all feel like this. And the only way through it is to do crappy work, to commit yourself to doing crappy work that then you will fix. If we try to do good work, we will not work. I'm going to put that, I'm going to say that one more time. If we try to be good at writing, we will not write. If we commit to doing crappy work on a regular basis, not only will the work get done, we'll be getting better and better at writing on a very steep learning curve. It goes real fast. The more you write, uh, you'll love it. You will love it. So I would love to know what you think about this. So let me know. Um, it did this help. All right. Uh, next question. I think we have, oh, we have two more questions. Uh, this is from Rachel W says, hi, Rachel. For the past couple of weeks, I've been struggling with a writing question and it only hit me today. Duh, you have access to the wise writing mind of Rachel Heron and her podcast, mini coaching Q and A sessions. Why not ask her? So that's what I'm going to do. So I've written book one of a historical mystery series with a paranormal slant. You might remember I sent my draft query letter to you when I was still doing that service. Yes, I do remember that. Uh, after revising and editing the book multiple times, I'm now querying it. I started working on book two and an aside here, thanks to your fast and crappy first draft approach, I banged out a first draft in just 10 weeks. Oh my gosh. I I always save these and then I don't read them ahead of time. So I forgot that you said that. That's awesome. Uh, it's an unholy mess, but I'm, it's done. So many thanks to you. However, I'm now in a bit of a quandary. Writing book two, <laughs> oh yes. Writing book two gave me tons of ideas for book three and beyond, but it also made me rethink book one, mostly the opening few chapters, a, bit, a few bits in the middle and a large chunk of the ending, tying everything together sequences. And my question is this, do I stop working on book two and stop querying and make these changes to book one now? I'm thinking yes, but then I worry that I'm too close to my work and the universe of my story to know slash assess whether these changes will really strengthen book one like I think or hope they will. I also worry that wanting to revise book one might just be another form of perfectionist tweaking, which can go on and on until the end of time. And I really want to keep book two moving so I don't lose the momentum I currently have. What would you suggest that I do? So I love it when people write their own answers in here. And I believe that's what you did. Um, keep writing book two and keep querying. And here's why I say this. And these are always just, you know, suggestions that you can throw out. Absolutely. But when you're querying, if you are asked for more of a sample than you have first sent them, if they have asked for a sample when you first, 
you know, you will look at their parameters, what they want you to send. Um, and you will send exactly that and no more when anyone is querying. Then if they get back to you and say, I would like to see a partial, they do not need to see a partial manuscript in the next five minutes. They do not care if you send it to them in two weeks. They honestly don't care if you send it to them in two or six months because they expressed interest in seeing more of this book, but they are already worked to death. You have some time. So once you get that request for partial or full, then what you do, like everybody else in the world, you go back and reread what you're about to send them and make some of those changes then. Take a day or two, make some of those changes if they feel good and natural and you're still committed to them, um, make some of those early changes. If they read the partial and then come back and say, can you send the full? Ask yourself again then, do I want to take a few days, a couple of weeks to fix the things I've been thinking about or should I just send it to them? And you get to make that decision then. Then you've lost no time or energy on working on book two. Yes, wanting to work on book one could be a procrastinating planning technique that could take weeks or months out of your system that you're in uh, because we can try to make things better forever and we do. So yes, I love this idea of you continuing to work on book two um, with the intention of working on book one when you need to, if you need to. You may get the request for the partial and say, no, no I'm just going to send what I have. Here you go. Here it is. That's great. You don't have to adjust anything, but then you get to decide in the moment and we all work better to deadline. So if they want it, you're going to do it quickly. You are not going to extend it out into multiple decisions. And did I do this right? Is it the best I can? No, you're going to work quickly in order to return to them the requested manuscript or partial manuscript. So that would be my advice for that. And I love that you already, you already knew this. You, you knew it. I could tell by the way you asked it. Uh, so congratulations on all the work that you have done. And this is so exciting. And um, I'm so excited to hear what happens. So please keep me posted, Rachel. Okay. And this is from Sophie. All right. And this is fun. She says, I signed with an agent about three years ago. I remember that. She suggested edits for my book, and I think it's improved from her feedback. She's worked hard trying to get it published, and it's gotten super close multiple times where an editor is championing, championing it to the marketing team, and it just hasn't happened. We haven't been given the sort of reasons that would make me want to revise, so I'm chalking this up to how traditionally publishing traditional publishing works as in subjective and frustrating and limited. I'm working on other books that I think have chances of being published, maybe even more so, but I'm not sure I want to hand them over and risk years of standing in place. I've lost so much writing steam and the thought of taking control is exciting. I've started wondering why the heck I care about being traditionally published. I think it was at first the dream, then vanity and stubbornness, but now I just want my friends to hold my books in their hands and to be able to send folks to my website where they can click and buy my books. I know independent publishing isn't easy, but at least I can choose to do it. Traditional publishing feels like handing over all power and being told I'm not good enough while I'm seeing other books that aren't any better than mine making it to the shelves. What are your thoughts? How do I approach this with my agent? I'm assuming we would stop working together. Any red flags that I'm not thinking about? Oh, so much here. So much good stuff. Okay. So the vagaries of publishing dictate that we will never understand the decisions that they make. And most decisions in traditional publishing are made by sales and marketing departments. So an so you can get an agent and then your agent can take your beautiful book to an editor at a publishing house. And the editor, what happens a lot of times is the editor will fall in love with it. And the editor will say, I want to publish this. I want to give this person some money and I want this to be coming from our house. That editor then has to go to these monthly sales and marketing meetings and pitch these books. They must convince them. A lot of times what they will do is they will get their um, one friend that works in sales to read it. And they'll get this person in the department to read it. Sometimes books will have to be read by five or six people within the department, within the imprint, in order to try to talk people into buying this book. If things like a pandemic are happening, people are less inclined to be championing many causes while they're just trying to survive. Um, sometimes worse books, books that are not as good as yours, might have a catchier 
hook that that appeals to the last person who can make the final decision. It doesn't mean it's a better hook. It just means it's catchier. It sounds catchier to that person who makes the final call on can we afford to give this writer an advance and what is that going, advance going to be? Your editor could want to give you, could want to buy this book and say, I must buy this book and I'm going to give her $75,000, which would be, I've never made that much of my life on a book, um, on an advance. But sales and marketing, she might talk the whole department into it, the whole imprint into it. Everybody's on board. Publisher signs off, but they're only going to allow them to offer you $2,000. So much is out of their hands and it's not about the quality of your book. And Sophie, I know that you know this. I'm just reiterating this to everyone else. Uh, Great books don't get published and mediocre books do because people think that they will sell. That's, that's all it is. Plus, we never know what they have on their docket, what, what's coming out. They can't buy your book if there's a book very similar that they've already bought that's coming out the same month or the month before. They don't want to compete against their own titles. So that's always, that's always happening. We never know what's going on at those marketing meetings. We can only guess from what we have heard from editors who come out and talk about what happens. Um, but yes, traditional publishing feels like handing over all power and being told I'm not good enough. It does feel like that. It, it just does. It feels exactly like that. And it can be incredibly frustrating. So I love that you are thinking about independently publishing. I love self-publishing. I absolutely love it. I get so much out of it. Um, I'm very excited about it. However, because you have other irons in the fire and you do, I, I know you personally, and I know that you may be drawn to the traditional route just to say that you did it like a lot of us have been. I will always confess to that needing, wanting, not needing, but wanting that ego stroke um, that the tradi- traditional publishing bestows upon you and you don't get much else besides a you know pleasant feeling. Um, you don't have to stop working with your agent entirely. You can say, I'm going to self-publish this book. Thank you so much for trying. Sounds like we couldn't do it. I'm going to self-publish this book and see what happens. And I'm going to continue writing some other books and I'm going to be finding my way. Would it be okay to present you with another book in the future? If I feel like it's at a place where I would like to work with you on perhaps some edits and then for you to take it out again, can we do this again? You can kind of keep her on standby in a, in a way. And of course that is up to her. If she wants to back away and say, no, I'm not, I'm not that into, you know, trying this with another book with you, then you would part amicably and your feelings would be hurt. Um, but more likely than not, she is your agent because she loves your work and she probably feels like crap about not being able to sell your book because it was her dearest dream as well to sell your book with you. And if you tell her, yeah, I'm going to be working on some other things. I would love to run some ideas by you if I feel like it. And, um, Perhaps I'll have something to show you in six months or a year. Does that sound okay? Then keep that door open if you want to. You are allowed to keep that door open. You are not obliged to be working with her or for her at any point. Uh, She is a part of your team and you reach out to your team when you need them. If you don't need her for the next six, 12 months, that's fine. Then you would reach out to her when you do, if that's okay with her. And if that's okay with you, if that's what you would want. And then you just get to make those decisions as you go, step by step. And I think that that's super exciting that you are thinking about taking taking the power and the control and you know the worry and the marketing and all you know everything else that goes with uh, self publishing. But I think you'll be great at it if that is what you choose to do for this first book or any of your other books. I think that you would have a blast. And then you'd be getting your excellent book into the hands of people to read. And yes, that feels amazing. That feels amazing. I've had a couple of students do that uh, this in this last session, watching their books arrive in their hands. And it is the best to see these pictures of them holding their books and the smiles on their faces and the champagne bottles in their hands. And, and it's Awesome. So keep me posted with what you decide on that. I would love to know. And y'all, this uh, podcast is definitely long enough. So I appreciate you listening. Thanks for letting me talk out my feelings, all of my, um, my humble brag feelings. I swear to God, that word humble brag, 
it's like the biggest punch in the snoot. I do not want to humble brag. I hate humble braggers, but you know how they say that you hate the things that are your own problems? Like if somebody really bothers you because they humble brag, it's probably your own problem. Yes. Yes. Uh, my wife almost fell over laughing when I told her about that. So whew, I remind you all that shame dissipates when it is spoken out loud and met with empathy. I don't know if you're meeting me with empathy. You may be screaming at me in your car, um, how much you can't stand anything I'm saying, but you did make it to the end of the podcast. May I point out, I am imagining all of you greeting me and meeting me with empathy. And therefore I do feel better already about moving into this quite large revision that I know today is totally within my strengths. Um, if I had to learn tools in order to revise this book, I'd be able to, but I, I've already got these tools. These are tools I love using. I can't wait to get them out and I will be able to do this. Will I be able to do it in a few days? Nope. It's going to take longer than I thought to do all of this work. And I'm so excited about doing it. Oh, and this is a postscript uh, that my assistant, Ed, will be so mad if I forget to mention, and I almost forgot to mention it. Uh, if you'd like to read any of my memoir, um, Life in Stitches is right now a Chirp audiobook deal for $1.99. So just go look at uh, Chirp audiobooks, A Life in Stitches by Rachel Heron, $1.99. And you can listen to the audiobook that uh, is the memoir that I got back. I revised and I recorded it myself and I'm super proud of this book. Oh, it feels good to be proud of a book instead of in the middle of um, difficulties with the book. So go out and grab that if you would like. So thank you for listening. Thank you for being here. Thank you for being um, part of my community. It means the world to me. If you'd like to get in on these Patreon coaching questions, I would love it if you did. That's at patreon.com slash Rachel. And I wish you all very happy writing. Go do some crappy writing. Go do some crappy writing so that you can have the joy of fixing it later and learning. It is really joyful. Oh my gosh. Thanks for listening, everybody. Okay. Happy writing. Bye. Thanks so much for joining me on this episode of How Do You Write? You can reach me on Twitter, Rachel Heron, or at my website, rachelheron.com. You can also support me on Patreon and get essays on living your creative life for as little as a buck an essay at patreon.com slash Rachel, spelled R-A-C-H-A-E-L. And do sign up for my free weekly newsletter of encouragement to writers at rachelheron.com slash write. Now go to your desk and create your own process. Get to writing, my friends.